Good morning, Aletheia Church. You can grab a seat. My name is Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If you haven't met me yet, come up and introduce yourself to me after church. I'd love to meet you. Uh, just first of all, for those of you that were here last week and came back this week, thank you. It's a true test of your love for God after how hot last week was. Um, my goodness, that was brutal. Um, so a little bit better this morning, and hopefully the rain's going to hold off. Just as a reminder to you guys, uh, two quick housekeeping things. One, if you are sitting here and you're listening to the sermon, and then like 10 minutes from now you are in direct sunlight and want to move, please get up and move. Don't feel like you have to stay in the same spot and be uncomfortable for 40 minutes or whatever the remainder of the service is going to be. Feel free to move. We're outside. We get that there's going to be distractions or whatever else. Feel free to move. We understand. We get it. Number two, if this is your first time with us or you haven't gotten one yet, uh, we have scripture journals uh, that contain 1 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy, and Titus. If you need one, just raise your hand. We want to give one to you. Those are our free gift to you. Um, mainly because we care about God's word here and we want you to have God's word in your hand. Uh, what we would encourage you to do is bring these back with you each week uh, and take notes and uh, bring them with you to your gospel community if you are in one, as we'll be studying 1 Timothy all throughout uh, this fall. And so uh, let me kind of just give you, if you haven't been with us yet, let me give you just a quick recap of what we've seen so far because we're heading into chapter two this morning. I said in the, the first week that we started um, this series that uh, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a young man named Timothy uh, to encourage him uh, in his leading or in how to lead uh, the church at Ephesus. Uh, the church at Ephesus is a famous church in the book of Acts. Uh, it is one of the churches that Paul spent the most time at while he was there. And so he had this deep love and affinity for the Ephesian church. And he also has this deep love for Timothy because he's poured a lot of time into Timothy when he was around him. And so the first thing we see as Paul begins encouraging Timothy is this charge to not allow false teachers to teach inside of the church. And what we see throughout chapter one is Paul reiterating this point to Timothy time and time again of, hey, keep the church focused on sound doctrine. Or to put it another way, keep the church's focus on the gospel. Keep the church centered and uh, rooted in the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done for us and how Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And we are now living in light of what Jesus Christ has done. Don't lose sight of that. Don't get focused on minute details. Don't get focused on debates over uh, genealogies or mythologies or all these various things that can pop up, right? Focus in on Jesus Christ and what he has done. And as Pastor Daniel shared with us last week, a failure to do that, a failure to, to follow your conscience and stay rooted in the gospel can lead to a shipwrecking of our faith. That if, if we are not careful both personally to be centered and rooted in the good news of what Jesus has done, allowing that to drive us on a daily basis, and then as a church staying rooted in that same truth, we run the risk of shipwrecking our faith and losing sight of what God has called us to be. 
And so this letter, right, is all about, right, keeping the focus on the gospel for a young church, right? We've entitled the series Instructions to a Young Church. And what we're going to see all throughout this letter is Paul encouraging Timothy on how to lead the church and how the church can come together and lock arms and stay focused on the good news of what Jesus has done. And so today, right, we're going to focus on prayer. Paul is gonna share with Timothy three things that we see in these seven verses. And if I've done my job this morning, we'll see these three things well. We'll see the call to prayer, we'll see the reason for prayer, and we'll see the power behind prayer. And in seeing these three things, we'll then take a detour at the end and spend some time learning from Jesus's example on how to pray. And then this week, if you're in a gospel community, you'll spend the majority of your time praying with one another, right? Praying for one another, praying for this church, praying for what God is doing in the lives of believers and unbelievers, because this is an important spiritual discipline that the church is called to participate in, not sometimes, but regularly. Right? And if you want to know more about spiritual disciplines, I'll give you a quick plug and Josh will be really proud of me. Right, We have a podcast called the Be The Church Podcast where that's exactly what we're going through, various spiritual disciplines. And one of them is entirely on prayer. So if you leave today and you're like, I want to know more, go download the podcast. Okay, so I'm going to pray for our time this morning and then we're going to dive into the text. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus and his fulfillment of your word. And I ask that this morning as we look at these first seven verses in 1 Timothy, that uh, as much as humanly possible, you will remove distractions from our midst, even though we're meeting outside, uh, that you would give us eyes and understanding and ears to hear your word. And Lord, once we hear it, will you transform us? Lord, will you use this morning to be a pivotal moment in our lives to make us a praying people, to make us a people centered around seeking you in prayer and in understanding? And will you transform us to love what you love, to love who you love and to make much of you? And I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let me, let me read these first two verses for you again, and we'll start unpacking some stuff here. So he says this, right? First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So anytime you're, you're reading scripture, a couple of things we need to understand is first and foremost, you know, it's really nice for us from a referencing purpose that we have these chapters and verses broken down throughout the Bible. It helps us to go find a particular area of scripture that we're looking for. But when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't break it down into chapters and send them, like he didn't send a letter each week to Timothy with a different chapter. When he wrote this letter, it was one continuous letter to Timothy, right? unpacking these things he wants Timothy to see and understand as he's leading the church at Ephesus. And so when he transitions here at the beginning of chapter two, and he says, first of all, right, what we need to understand is that 
Paul is going to start linking a new concept or a new idea in this letter to what he's just been talking about. And the reason why I spent a few minutes on reviewing with you guys that the, first, the thing we see in the first chapter of this uh, letter is all about gospel centrality and how the church needs to be centered around the good news. What Paul is going to be sharing with Timothy now is, okay, I've shared everything with you on what I think the church needs to know from a foundational perspective. Sound doctrine is what the church has to be built on. And that sound doctrine is on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's kind of what we see in the first chapter. As he moves into chapter two, he says, first of all, and what he means by that is then as you lead with integrity inside the church on the gospel being the, the most important thing that the church gathers about, do what I'm about to tell you. So, so if, you, if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, okay, I've been here for the last three weeks, Pastor Kevin, I, I understand this importance around gospel centrality, but it's kind of been more of like a, a philosophical idea to me. It's kind of been this idea of like, okay, that's what we're supposed to do, but how do we do it? This is where we start moving into the practicality of how do we do it? This is gonna be the first step in that. And the first thing that he says to him, right, is I urge you, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, right? So if we reframe out this first verse of what Paul is saying to Timothy, here's what he's saying. If you wanna lead this church, Timothy, if you want to keep the church on target and on mission, to lead in the midst of false teachers who probably know the scriptures better than you, here's what you need to do, pray. That's what you need to be doing, pray. Now, I'm an Enneagram 8. Some of you guys have an idea of what I'm talking about. Some of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about, right? I hear that and I'm like, this seems counterproductive, right? Like I, I, I'm ill-equipped to lead the church. I'm young and I've got a bunch of people who are creating disunity and problems around me inside the church that I'm leading, right? My natural inclination would be to either learn as much as possible or create a huge fight and get those people to leave. That would, that would be my, my default strategy if I was Timothy in the first century at the church of Ephesus. I'm going to kick these guys out with a holy boot, right? I'm, get out of here. You're done. The game's over. If you want, we can have a debate. And even though you know the scriptures better than me, I'm better at debating than you. And so I'm going to win because I'm an Enneagram 8 and I love myself and I love everything that I say. Right? And so that would be my default position as I approached this issue. And you would think, right? Paul would say to Timothy, hey, hey go to seminary, go, go get learned, right? Uh, better understand the Greek and the Hebrew and better understand the Old Testament, sit underneath of a, a Jewish rabbi. And, and then once you've grown as a leader and, and you've, you've followed the, 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 the steps that you need to, to be able to lead people and you learn all these things that you need to learn, then you can go back in and assert your dominance and throw out the troublemakers inside the church. And everything that I'm describing right now from a practical point of view makes perfect sense. Right? If you're in the business world, I can guarantee you that if there is trouble inside the boardroom or inside the manager room or inside the office, what's going to happen is someone's going to come out on top. And yet when we take a step back, right, and we've seen this charge given to Timothy, 
by Paul, the guy who planted this church, who understands everyone inside of this church, inside and out, knows who the troublemakers are and knows where the problems are. He says, Timothy, the primary thing you can do is pray and lead those around you to be praying as well. You don't need to be learning and memorizing scripture. Not that that's a bad thing. You don't need to be learning and growing in various disciplines. You don't need to become a better public speaker. You don't need to become a better leader. The first command we see to this young church is to teach them and lead them to be a praying people. And to be sure that Timothy gets that concept, that he understands what Paul is saying, he shares four types of prayer with Timothy. He says, in your supplications, right? Supplications are when we go to God and ask for things that we need, right? Asking for what you need. Uh, He says prayers, which is just a general term for for talking and conversing with the Lord, right? And talking with him, letting him know what's going on in your life and, and going to him in prayer. He says intercessions, which is asking God to intervene in the life of others. This is where you would pray for your one or you're praying for your family member or someone that, that needs God's intervention. You are praying for them. And then he says in thanksgiving, these, these are prayers that express gratitude to God for what he has done or what you believe he will do. And Paul basically says, Timothy, in all the ways that you pray, in all the places that you might pray, at all the times that you might pray, lead the church to pray for all people. So Paul makes it clear the number one thing that the church can do from a practical standpoint, if they wanna be a gospel-centered church that loves Jesus, that is on mission, that is living out the call of discipleship in their lives, the number one thing you can be doing is praying. Now, now why, why would that be the first thing that he would mention? Because Timothy is in the throes of drama. He he is dealing with a very difficult situation. But think about what prayer is and what prayer does. If you've ever taken a moment to just step back and think about like, hey, when I I get up in the morning and I, I read the Bible or I'm praying on my way to work or I'm praying on my 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 walk to class, or I'm praying on my lunch break, or whatever it may be, when you're praying, what what is actually taking place? Think about this for a second, right? Prayer, prayer by definition, recenters you on what matters. You know, if you're if you're distracted by by things in your life, maybe people or pressures or problems, whatever that may be, right? The moment you're in prayer, and I and I can speak from experience, prayer recenters me. Okay, yeah, I have all these things going on, but. But when I, when I go in prayer, I may be worried about those things, but I'm actually taking them to someone who could do something about it. And instead of thinking about all the various ways that I could get rid of these false teachers or become a better leader or become more trained or become more learned, I can just take a step back right? and God can recenter me on what I need to focus on. Right? So, so prayer recenters us on what matters. Prayer, prayer reminds us of how little control we have. Right? By definition, if you are going to God in prayer, you are submitting to the sovereignty of God. Do you ever realize that? Prayer, prayer by definition 
reminds you that you were created by someone who's more powerful than you are. Right? The same way that when Josiah needs help, that's my youngest son, he comes to dad, right? He, he is in practical terms admitting, dad, I need your help because you can do this and I can't. Prayer is the same thing. Right? Prayer re-centers you right? and reminds you, you are not the center of the universe. God is. And from a practical standpoint, that is good and healthy for us to be reminded of that regularly. Because I, I, I'm the chief right, person that commits this sin. Right? If I walk through my day without praying and being re-centered on Christ, I love me some me, to quote the great Terrell Owens. Right? That he would, he would take a step back and I'd say, oh man, like, I love what I love. I love doing what I can do at any given time, right? And as I walk through my life, I'm gonna be centered around what I want when I want it. But prayer reminds me and draws me back in of how little control I have over my own life. And not only does prayer remind us of who is in control, but prayer also graciously shows us that God cares. Sit there and think for a minute on your life and whether you had a good dad or a good mom in your life. And when you needed things or you were struggling or you needed someone to talk to, whether you could go to them. And some of, the, some of you guys here this morning may not be able to say that. And, I, and I, would, I would submit to you that the beauty of the gospel is that even when you don't have a good father or a good mother or a good parent figure in your life, that you still have a heavenly father who loves you and cares for you and is there for you. But for those of you that had good earthly fathers or good earthly mothers, you can relate with this. To have a parent that would surrender and lay down what they're doing at any given time to love you and care for you and hear you out. This is the promise of God in scripture on how God wants to hear from us because he cares. And so prayer graciously shows us that God cares for us, that he wants to know what's going on in our lives and be there for us. And so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, the first thing that you can do as you start leading this church is you can pray yourself and you can start teaching those inside the church with you to be a praying people. And as you teach them to develop this discipline in their lives, pray for who? All people. And then he goes on into verse two to say, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, now think about this for a second. Why would Paul specifically mention kings and all who are in high positions. Why would he go out of his, he just got done saying for all people. And then he takes a special moment to then take a step back and say, yeah, for all people, all people. That's, that's who I want you to, to, to pray for. And I want it specifically to be for kings. This church in Ephesus was under Roman control. And if you don't know anything about the Romans, they weren't very kind to the church as it started. And so the leaders were not well-liked because they persecuted Christians. And Paul is reminding them, hey, as you pray, pray for them too. The people that hate you and are trying to shut down your house church and kill you, pray for them as well. Guys, this is 
really, really, really important for us to understand, especially in our current cultural climate. If we're going to be the church, we need to recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is greater than the borders and barriers that life puts up around us. That the, that the gospel is bigger than tribal politics. That the, the gospel is greater than what might divide us on policy or procedures. And that if we're going to be the church, the first thing we should run to is not a Facebook post, not a social media post, not an argument with a friend over something, but to pray. And, and I'll, I'll be the first to say this. I have struggled with this, this at times, even, even in the last several weeks, right? Our, our local leaders here in our county did something that irritated me about two weeks ago. And, and the first thing I did was start contacting other pastors and other people in the area, expressing my anger and frustration with what was going on. And it was wrong for me to have done that. It was wrong for me to do that first instead of to instead run to prayer and to begin to pray for those men and women who lead in our area. Because God demands this and asks this of us to pray for these men and women, even when we disagree with them. This means that no matter where you stand on the political spectrum, you pray for Trump. And if you love Donald Trump and you can't wait to vote for him in November and you hate the other side, it means you're praying for Biden or Pelosi or whoever they're running against. Not because you agree with them, not because you even necessarily want to choose them as who would represent you in our government, but because God asks you to pray for all people, including those that he has sovereignly placed in leadership over you. And prayer matters a lot more than complaining on social media. You may be sitting there like, well, why is this important? Well, Paul gives us the reason why this is so important here. I gotta move back here. Sorry for the rain, guys. This is so important because he says, the number one thing that this allows us to do is live a peaceful and dignified life. That it leads to godliness. Prayer, as I said earlier, will recenter us. It will remind us of God and what he has done for us. That God is in control and that he will transform any situation that we might be placed in. But prayer also will take us in those times where, especially when we see things being as divisive as they currently are in our culture, from being anxious and angry to quiet and dignified because God is bigger than those situations. The call is simple. No matter how difficult what we may be walking through is, we are called to be centered on the mission of the gospel and that the first thing that should lead us to do is to pray for all people. Now, he gives the call to pray in those first two verses. In verses three and four, he's gonna give them the primary reason for prayer. Right? He says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior, who desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Right, so he says two things, right? It is good for us. Should I stop for a minute? It is good for us 
and it is pleasing to the Lord. It is pleasing to the Lord for us to follow these things. Right, so what, what he's saying is, and we don't need to go in a ton of depth on this, but if God is really God, if God is really who we want to please, Paul is assuming that from what he is saying, right, that we should seek to honor God in all that we do. And that means that from the, from the outset, we should want to honor him and prayer would allow us to do so. Now he says something in verse four that I think is super fascinating. And I want to point this out to you. He says this, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So a few weeks back, right, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, that we are saved based not on our own merit, but God's choice and mercy. That's something I pointed out to you guys a couple weeks ago. And I said that this was good news because it means that God is responsible for who is saved, not us, right? So if God is the one who is responsible and not you, it means he's after his own glory. And after he's, if he's after his own glory, he succeeded. So this leads to two questions, I think, okay? If God desires to save all people, why then aren't all people saved? Why aren't all people Christians? And this is difficult, but I think it's important that we wrestle with it. So I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 9. Okay? Bear with me. Paul's talking about how God has chosen his people and he's chosen to save some. And this is what he says, starting in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See what Paul's saying there? He's saying, look, listen, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have God to thank for that. And it's not as if you made some wildly great choice to become a follower of Jesus that God chose to save you. Look at what he says next. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, that's God, has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens on whomever he wills, right? So this is, this is difficult for us to fathom, right? We sit there and we listen to what Paul is saying and Paul says, look, God chooses to show mercy to some people and chooses not to show mercy to others and instead allows their hearts to be hardened and to be in rebellion towards God. For some of us, we're like, that's really, really difficult for me to fathom. I don't like it. I don't like hearing that God is that way. And it would lead some of us to ask this question, is God unfair then? It seems like God is being unfair. Let me read this next part to you on what Paul says. You will say to me then, this is verse 19 of Romans 9, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So you see the question that Paul's asking there? He's saying, well, wait a minute. If God is sovereign and calling some to respond to his grace and mercy, how, how in the world could God still find fault? And look at what he says. But who are you 
owe man to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Let me translate what he's saying there. God does what he wants. Why? Because he's God. He gets to decide. And God has endured rebellion to show his power and mercy in this way. It is his sovereign choice to operate this way. And he chooses to save some, but faith and repentance are gifts of God. Some of you guys are sitting there and like, hey, this sounds an awful lot like Calvinism. Sounds an awful lot like Calvinism, Kevin. Call it what you want. All right, I, I'll just say this. It's what the Bible teaches. I'm reading the Bible for you word for word. As a matter of fact, I don't care for the term Calvinism because I follow Jesus, not Calvin. But here's what I would say. We can disagree on the nuances of what some of this looks like, but just hear what the word of God says. God chooses to show mercy to whom he chooses to show mercy to. And yet, don't lose sight of that than in what Paul says. The same guy who's talking in Romans 9 says this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Right? That God still commands us to pray for all people. And even though he is sovereign in whom is saved and responds to the gospel, God asks us to petition to him, to come to him in prayer, and to respond in prayer in praying for those that do not yet know him. And so we see Paul saying to Timothy, Hey, those false teachers who it seems as if God's wrath is on them, pray for them because you do not know if God's mercy might be shown to them and you need to petition to me and ask me to respond for their behalf. Now, we see the call to pray. We see the reason for prayer. And then lastly, in verses five through seven, we're gonna see the power behind prayer. Jesus is the power source to prayer because he unlocks that access to God the Father for us. This is why Christians are crazy about Jesus because where fellowship and communication was broken with the Father, God has restored that fellowship through Christ. And prayer is powerful and effective because of Jesus. This is why caring about sound doctrine matters because if Jesus isn't who he really said he was, he can't be the one to restore that fellowship. 
And that's why Paul starts off his letter talking about the beauty and the importance and the power of the gospel. And then now he's working out the implications of what the gospel does for us. That the gospel frees us to be a people who can go to God in prayer. And so you're saying, okay, I hear you, Kevin, prayer. It's important. It's what God wants for us, right? God calls us to pray. He gives us the reason for prayer because it's good and pleasing to the Lord, right? He gives us the the power behind that prayer, that it's in Christ. But how should I pray? Do I need to go buy some books and some examples? I think the most important thing we can do is let scripture be our guide in this. Right, so I'm gonna turn over to Matthew chapter six. I'm gonna read this for you out of Matthew chapter six. This is Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount and he, he breaks down what prayer is supposed to look like starting in verse nine. He says, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some of you guys may have grown up in a tradition where you had to memorize that prayer and your church said it every week. But here's what I want to I want to share with you guys this morning. For those of you guys that are really, really close to the TV, you're going to be really close to it and see what we're sharing with. But it, no, we're shut down now. Sorry. Okay. Thank you, Rain. Right? But there's six movements that we see inside of this prayer. Right? And a friend of mine by the name of Ted Sin taught this to me a couple years ago. Uh, he, he was a church planner down in Orlando, and now he's in Alabama. Uh, but he says there's six movements in the Lord's Prayer that God uh, has laid out for us that we can then model our prayers after. And here are those six movements, right? The first one is sonship, right? Where Jesus says, our father in heaven, right? And so that movement is recognizing God as our father and we can pray prayers, right? Centered around God's adoption for us as sons and daughters of his family, Meaning that, that what is going on here and what, what Jesus is sharing with us is that our prayer should start off or in some way recognize the fact that we are now God's children. That at one point we were God's enemies and now we are God's children. And that when we are praying for others, prayers for sonship would be prayers asking God to adopt those that don't already know him that we pray and ask God to move in the lives of others and that God might adopt them as his children. The second movement we see is this, hallowed be your name, worship. That word hallowed means to keep separate or holy or unique and that we would pray for God to, to allow us to honor him and know that he is better than all things, right? That your prayers can contain worship that worship isn't just centered around a few songs on a Sunday morning or you listening to worship music on Spotify, but that you can look out over creation or that in prayer, you can cry out to God, declaring his power and his beauty. The third movement is this, right? He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? That movement is entitled lordship. And it means that we recognize 
that the world is not fully operating how God wants, but that God is sovereign and can enlarge and advance the kingdom of heaven on earth until his return. This means we can pray for thing like, things like asking God to eradicate evil and injustice, that we can ask God to give us the power and the wisdom to act and rule as he would so that we can be agents of change for his kingdom on this side of eternity. The fourth movement, give us this day our daily bread, is a movement of provision, asking God to primarily provide for our physical needs. Guys, we all need some basic things, air, water, food, and rest. And it is okay to ask God to help to provide those things because God is gracious and wanting to do so. The fifth movement, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This movement is about reconciliation and repentance. Both reconciling with others and reconciling with God, this means that in prayer, we confess sin and ask for God's forgiveness and to change us, but we also ask God to forgive others and to forgive us when we have sinned against others. And that he would give us the strength and the courage and the compassion to both forgive, but also ask forgiveness of others when necessary. And then lastly, the last movement, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a movement of prayer asking for salvation. And not asking for salvation in the sense that we need saved from eternal punishment, because hopefully most of us have already prayed and asked God to do that. But this is asking God to protect us from things on a daily basis that might lead us astray. Asking God to deliver us when we are tempted and to reduce those temptations when they come. This is the example that Christ has given us. And so church, here's, our, here's my charge to us this morning. If we wanna be the church if we want to love God and honor him, if we want to love people and point them to the saving grace of goodness and goodness that's found only in Jesus, we must pray. It is not optional. It is what God demands of us. It cannot be a footnote in our day. It must be the thing that drives our walk with the Lord. And so as you leave today, as you sit around here as the, the rain's dying off here finally, right, and we spend some time responding in music, I would encourage you before you take communion or before you start singing to do exactly what Paul calls Timothy and the church to do, and that's pray. And in that, focus, focus on just one of these six movements. Right? Maybe you'll focus on your, your sonship and your adoption into God's family. Right? Maybe you'll just worship him and thank God for who he is and what he has done already in your life. Maybe you'll pray for injustice that you see going on in the world around us and ask God to move. Maybe you'll ask God to provide for you today or provide for someone you know. Maybe you're convicted of sin and you'll ask God to grant you repentance. 
Or maybe you're in a season of suffering and temptation and you'll ask God to deliver you. But I would encourage you to pray through that. And then this week when you're in your gospel communities or you're in groups on your campus ministry, use these six movements as your guide in prayer and teach others to pray to God this way. Josh, why don't you come on up and I'm gonna go ahead and close us in prayer. It looks like the sun is back out. So I would encourage you maybe not to sit in your wet seat, but maybe we'll be good to spend a few minutes in prayer, worshiping the Lord. Let's pray.